Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week, genetics. It's STEM for those of us who don't know a joke about the speed of sound, but can always mock one. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Really excited about that. (laughs) As you should be. (laughs) Gillian, what's new this week? Well, I received an incredible voice memo with a delightful STEM fact from my dear friend, Danny Pudi, my former co-star on Community, current star of Mythic Quest, and it features a special guest appearance from his daughter, Fiona. Ooh, I can't wait. Hey, this is Danny Pudi, and I'm here with my daughter, Fiona, and we're going to give you a fact about hummingbirds. Did you know that they can hover? They can also fly forwards, backwards, and even upside down. Ooh, hummingbird fact. Word. <laughs> Yay! Yay! <laughs> I didn't know they could fly upside down. I didn't know any of that. I guess I knew they could hover, but beyond that, <laughs> it's all news to me. Have you seen any hummingbirds um, nearby where you live? Oh, yes. I see hummingbirds all the time. And I told you about my infamous uh, ruby-throated hummingbird costume as a child, so they... Oh. We all know that. <laughs> so I've always loved hummingbirds. How about you? I Yeah, I recently I've started seeing a lot of hummingbirds nearby, and it's really nice. Like, I feel like they get kind of in my face. Like, they kind of look at me like, hello, and then oh. they fly away. Oh, that's so sweet. What's going on with you? Tell me what's up. Well, this is not a thing that I have actually done, but I read an article recently that said that astronomers have created the largest map of the universe's dark matter. <gasps> I know, right? Like, it's it's so wild to think. Just not too long ago, we did not even know what dark matter was. We didn't have, like, a concept of it. And now we're mapping it and we're figuring out where those voids are, where there's density, when where there's low-density areas. And it's important because when scientists know this, they can understand how gravity acts differently in these areas mm-hmm. and see how dark matter affects these gravities. It's very cool. This is very cool. Very, <laughs> very cool. <laughs> All right. And for story time this week, we'll be joined by my friend, author Mary H.K. Choi. She's going to help us share a story about an inventor who helped develop a precursor to the modern day stoplight. But first, we're talking to Dr. Janina Jeff, a geneticist who looks at the connection between stories in our genetic history and black identity. She also explores these topics in her podcast called In Those Genes. Great title. (laughs) Yes. And before we get into the specifics of her work, we started our conversation with some basics about genetics. Okay, great. Let's get to our interview with Dr. Janina Jeff.
Let's start with some really basic but important questions when it comes to genetics. So the first one is, what are genes? So genes are what make up the first step of the central dogma. And the central dogma is a process in which DNA is transcribed to RNA and RNA is translated into proteins and proteins tell our bodies what to do um, and help us conduct several bodily functions, help keep us alive. And what I like to tell people to think about this in a more simpler way is that genes are pretty much the instruction manual um, to our bodies. So if you think about your genome as a book and your book has several letters in it and you can think about those letters as being DNA, a gene would be like a word. And if we wanted to think about the whole process like that central dogma that I told you about in one particular bodily function, we would think about genes that make up, um, in this context, these words that make up a sentence, right? And this sentence really is what describes, you know, the narrative of the book. And you mentioned a genome. Will you just tell us what that is as well? Yeah. So uh, we talk about genes and, and going back to our book analogy, let's say genes are the, the, the words in this book. Um, DNA are, are the letters. And the genome is comprised of all of those words. And so the genome is a comprehensive term that describes all of our genes. And so as humans, we have about 25,000 genes. Wow. I read that humans are about 99% the same genetic material. Yeah. How is that possible? Yeah. Um, so it's possible because if we think about going back to, let's, let's just start with the first humans. We call her, um, big mama, AKA mama mitochondria, but like <laughs> Wikipedia calls her mitochondrial Eve, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> anyway, the first modern day human that we, that we know of, or that, that we, that we have been able to trace DNA back to, um, lived in Africa and obviously made it. And there were other human species, but like I'm talking about Homo sapiens. Um, and then as they made it and started to migrate outside of Africa, if you think about like the basics, the very basic things that keep humans alive, right? Like that's majority of our DNA. Like our bodies are just trying to keep us alive long enough to make other humans, right? Like that's the whole goal. Um, and so if something is working, and like, oh, that generation did good. That was a great life. Let's just continue it on. Let's say something happens, right? Um, you know, like a, a huge catastrophic event or, or something like that. Or maybe there's a migration out of one place because of the environment. And our genomes have to change really quickly. And you have this like rapid evolution. Um, that happens too, right? But like, because we've been living for quite a long time, 200,000 years or so, the things that work well are preserved, right? The things that work well are passed on and passed on and passed on. And the little differences, i.e. something like skin color that help protect you from, you know, strong UV rays from the sun and that kind of thing, those little details and stuff like that, um, make up things like our 0.1% that make us different, right? Um, and these things... Are, are probably not as important as, you know, breathing and your heart beating, <laughs> right? So, like, majority of our cells are, like, really just trying to live their best lives and trying to keep you alive and trying to keep things going. And so majority of the things that we need to survive are shared. 
And the things that that make up our differences that we should now celebrate, you know, instead of using for like harmful things like the past, but let's just celebrate those things. Really just tell a beautiful story about our ancestors, a beautiful story about like how they were, where did they live? What what type of things that they do, right? Um, that's what that 0.1% is. And that's like, in my opinion, like that's the most interesting part of the book, you know? So for human geneticists, where do they tend to focus their research? And are there areas that you would love to see more attention drawn to? So a lot of geneticists, like I talked to you about the central dogma, right? Like, oh, a gene does this and it, you know, eventually affects this protein. This protein is involved in this process and it causes this thing. Like that's what we're like. We're really like, oh, that's the cool part. Like we're trying to figure out, like, how does this word predict the whole chapter? How does it tell me something about the book, right? Um, And so I think a lot of geneticists for the longest have really been trying to understand that, like, what does the gene do? And now, like, is there a letter in that word, you know, that's different, that does something different? And what does that difference do? Because if I can figure out what that letter is, and I know that if I can figure out what a letter is in this word and what it does and how it changes the sentence, then I can maybe create a drug target to change the narrative of that sentence, right? Um, and so that's what most geneticists are interested in. Um, I Maybe I'm being biased. I, I'm also interested in that. But I would say I do really love that 0.1% and like thinking about it. And I think it's because of the science communication now, like thinking about what are some stories that kind of tell us the beauty of evolution? What are some stories that just tell us like how humans were like back then, like how dope they were doing so crazy, great things and being creative and how that creativity now, you know, is the reason that we're here. I think it's such a cool thing. So like I, I'm a population geneticist and I like to study that and like to study how populations evolved over time and created and developed over time. Um, the reason why I think that that is important or why I say more people should be studying it is because it helps understand why there are certain letters in this word or why it's spelled this way in that sentence that we all share. And then some of us, sentence means something different. We can't create a drug target based off of one group of people who share one ancestor when other groups of people share another ancestor because that drug target won't work. So if we're talking about making science equitable, then we have to understand populations and we have to understand the, the common ancestors and the environments they lived in. And, and, and I, I think once we realize that, you know, genetics and the benefit of genomics is for everybody and become equally interested and invested in those stories. And really, those stories are powerful. And understanding those things are very powerful and eradicating diseases and things that could help us live longer, not just for the people that we're studying, but for everybody. You know, as I get older, um, I'm thinking about genetics more and more, specifically how it relates to disease, inherited disease, and, you know, um, illnesses that are in my family that I'm wondering about for my own health and my mother's health. And so I find myself thinking about genetics more and more in my everyday life. How are you feeling coming into this interview? I was really excited to talk to Dr. Jeff. Um, looking at her work, I was really excited. I was also nervous because 
traditionally there have been some not great uses of the study of genetics. And that's mm-hmm. not about her work. That's not about anything I read about her. That's just if you look at the history of the way geneticists have operated, you know, sometimes it's it's not great. And that's not all. Like I said, that's not all of them. But when it's bad, it's bad. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. So this next question that I'm about to ask you, I feel like it's a it is a little bit of a like uh, a controversial question, but it's not meant to be a, a gotcha question at all. <laughs> not every geneticist, but some geneticists have used the study of genetics and genetic material for pretty nefarious purposes, like eugenics. You know, even people are still feeling kind of controversial about cloning, the idea of DNA databases being shared with the police. So I kind of want to hear you talk a little bit about your relationship to kind of the history of genetics and if you see any way to kind of, or any responsibility about changing people's perception of geneticists. Yes. Um, I say that we have to really confront the past in order to move forward. We have to be very honest. Like the beginning of the field of genetics started with eugenics. So it is a painful past. And it, 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 and it was used as a way to kind of constitute human hierarchy. And we have to own that. And mm-hmm. there are some, you know, really residual side effects that we see today, you know. Um, I hate that that is our reality. I really hate that that is our reality. But we have to confront it. So one, that is our reality, that genetics has been abused in the past, and particularly for disenfranchised folks. That's one big thing. Um, The second, though, is how do we start to break up with that? Okay, we did that. Not great. Now we need to undo that. And one of the things that we can start to do is try to dismantle some some really long-hold beliefs about genetics. One of those big ones is race. And I say race in quotations because it's not a real thing. Somebody created it and conveniently thought, hey, genetics is a perfect way to just make this science. So let's just make it science. And um, literally that's how it happened, right? We have to break up with that, right? Like We know that there are similarities with people who share a common ancestor, but this idea of race and this idea of categorizing people with physical traits All of that became something that was not science, right? And so we can still use genetics in very powerful ways and disassociate ourselves from creating more human hierarchy. We can start to use genetics in more powerful ways, in more unbiased ways, in more equitable ways to create cures, to create, um, you know, prophylactic approaches to prevent diseases, to prolong life, to enable more life. These are things that are very powerful things that we can do. I personally love the power of genetics. I also personally am conflicted with the history of genetics. So I call myself a geneticist. And the reason why I call myself a geneticist is because I really do identify with W.E.B. Du Bois' double consciousness. I really do identify of like, man, I love the science. I see the power. I see all these amazing things that we can do that can change, you know, human life as we know it. I also see the abuse. I also am a, I feel the abuse. I also experience the abuse. Um, Being a person in this field who doesn't look like the majority of people in this field, 
being a person who has a family and, you know, that family also understanding, you know, how genetics has been harmful to our community specifically, how it hasn't necessarily been as beneficial for us as it has for other communities. So I live with that conflict too, but I don't believe in letting conflict just sit and just fester, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to get it out as one of those artistic ways of getting out as the podcast. And then, you know, but really trying to think about the future and really trying to think about, okay, what are the things we need to do to disassociate and remove and unlearn all these harmful things that was the foundation of genetics and change that and start to use the powerful things and start to celebrate the differences between humans to really advance life, not just for one group of people, um, for, but for everyone. And even being a geneticist, I don't believe that having a PhD or, you know, because I have been fortunate enough to get the, the training to do this, but I don't necessarily also subscribe to only certain type of people have access to the field, right? I think we all should be in community and there's going to be so much more that we learned when we are in community. I mean, you see a lot of these diversity initiatives realizing that actually we can't have this transactional relationship where we just ask people for data. It has to be a, a communal approach because we need help understanding the data. Actually, we don't know what data we need if we don't interact with the community. We don't know how to use the data appropriately. Um, and when we start to think about something like a disease, we start to think about the entire you know, pathology and, and what's the cause of disease. Genetics is oftentimes a small part of that picture and all these other right. things we have to learn. So that does require human engagement, community engagement, and just like, you know, being a dope human and like respecting other dope humans, right? Like that's, it's not, it's not hard. It's not hard, but it's very uncomfortable. Can we break down something really interesting you said, um, which is that you were mentioning that race is just a construct. Um, Can you break that down a little bit more? Race, very similar to gender, is something that was created to support a system that was already creating human hierarchy, but it wanted to create it and make it biology. And so the idea was that, well, these differences that really the differences between us are our ancestors, it's just really a representation of like where they lived. Like that's, that's it. You know, like, you know, having darker skin was like, oh, fam, you live by the equator. Bet. Right. <laughs> you know, like, you know, <laughs> having lighter skin, having, you know, um, having lighter hair and all this stuff is it's really all connected to the environment, you know. Mm. And this idea that we want to say, well, actually, no, it also explains other things like intellect or other things like psychological traits. And we tried to categorize these things. And it was a very convenient time, you know, as we started to see colonization happen around the world. And as we started to uh, have slavery, it was like a very convenient way to say, hey, these people were born this way to do this thing that's different from us. Therefore, they must have these rights or responsibilities. And actually, the original idea was that different people, uh, people who have different common ancestors for different, from different continents, living in different parts of the world and different environments, that they were considered subspecies. And by mm-hmm. definition, a subspecies is, 
You know, uh, if we think about primates, for example, there are several subspecies of primates and each subspecies are very unique, right? The, the idea is a subspecies forms because people who have two genetic distinct backgrounds mate and their offspring, however, is infertile. So that, that offspring cannot mate, right? And then you see the development of different species. But if you think about humans, right, we all come from different parts of the world, but we know we can mate. We know our mate. <laughs> we know them offspring. They can mate too, right? So not a subspecies. Race is not a subspecies, but that was like the idea. You know, all of these um, anatomical differences and that that really could explain, you know, well, really was abused to explain things that we call race is kind of how it, it happened. But it was really just like a convenient way at a very convenient time during this enlightenment period where these scientists are like, you know, really putting, making science science and trying to rationalize and put process into why something is the way it is and explaining things was like, man, let's just also throw in race in there and see where it gets us, Hmm. right? But then, you know, as the field kind of evolved, well, the constitution of slavery became a very convenient way, right? Because really like, the the slave owners were the ones and people in, in the economics of slavery were the ones like funding academia back in the day, right? Mm. So like it was also this like complicated, you know, capitalistic driven thing. It's actually not that different now. And the reason why I say that is because when we think about who is funding research and who is driving research, it is still very much so like a very capitalistic approach. And so if capitalism is directly tied to racism and the two benefit from each other, then they support these structures inherently. And so when I say like, we're far away from getting to that lofty thing when I was like, oh, being optimistic, like if we just unlearn those things, like unlearning those things is a big deal. Because unlearning those things like really affects everyone um, and people have to get very uncomfortable because it means that, hey, if I have privilege in this thing because of this pseudoscience of race or pseudoscience of gender, I have to let go of that, right? Because while I'm benefiting from it, there's a group of people who are not benefiting from it. What are your, your feelings listening back to this conversation? Race being a social construct is a statement that I've heard before. I, I always think of Tahanesi Coates, mm. um, an article that I read um, by him. And when you think about it, it's like, yeah, that that makes sense. It's pretty awful, <laughs> the idea that we just go ahead and make up imaginary things to divide us, yeah. which is really silly. Um, how about you? I'm... Realizing more and more how this affects so many areas of STEM, as I'm listening back to this conversation, I, I was thinking of the points made in the interview with uh, with Arua about VR headset design not mm. being designed for black hair. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about um, all the other ways in which capitalism intersects with science mm-hmm. and also this notion that's put out there that science is objective. Yeah. um, But that it is actually created and funded and driven by people who bring their biases unconscious and conscious to it. 
people say that about algorithms, but algorithms are written by people. Mm -hmm. And so they carry those biases as well. And so it's, it's not just genetics that we need to look at in this way. I agree. So let's talk about some of these uh, at-home genetic testing companies you mentioned earlier. We're talking about companies like 23andMe. In your TED Talk, you mentioned the W.E.B. Du Bois quote about having a double consciousness um, that kind of explains two opposing Black experiences. Now, for anyone listening that is not familiar with the double consciousness concept, please go read about it. Um, But can you talk about that in relation to genetic testing companies? Um, I've always felt weird about it. For me, I originally was a little put off by the company's heavy marketing to the Black community for free tests, um, just tech tests, and just for data, right? And uh, when I was in graduate school, I knew the value of an African genome. I, but I didn't like really connect like the, the benefit for a company to kind of make these discoveries. And uh, most importantly, I think the discoveries are cool, right? I think that's so dope. I love that. What's not dope is that the discoveries being made are not coming back to the people that were used in order to make the discoveries possible. Hmm. And I talk about that in the TED Talk where it's like, you know, we use genomes to make discoveries, to create drugs, but are the same populations or is everyone having access to that benefit? Um, Then also, one person also told me if something's free, then you are the product, Mm. right? You know, and so I had to, you know, and then this later came out where, you know, you have companies like 23andMe selling their data sets and you you have a lot of companies selling data now. Data is a very profitable thing. Um, I think that it's intentionally not transparent to people how data is used and how it can be used in the future for this very purpose that we talked about in the beginning of this podcast, because we have to keep this system of hierarchy that's fueled by capitalism. So if we're completely transparent in telling you, hey, your data is worth all this money and, you know, it's very valuable. You would probably be like, well, then you should pay me for that. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And maybe by you paying me for that or, you know, me figuring out other ways in, in which I can create capital gains from it, then maybe... These these groups that have been largely disenfranchised can use that power to kind of change that narrative and make things more equitable. If you really want equality, you should be okay with that. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Amen. I mean, but but also uh, one thing, and I and and this is about all companies. I don't like the I don't like the abuse of genetics sometimes. So, if like for example, when Twenty Three and Me and all these other companies were like really hitting the ground running, and I was at the end stages of my graduate career. Um, I was also nervous that there was going to be a misinterpretation of the information. So we talked about transparency, but like what can happen with the data and money. But let's also talk about transparency from a scientific perspective and what it means and how it can change what a person does with their life. If you take a genetic test and you found out that, hey, you might develop a disease b- based on that test. And we as researchers and scientists haven't figured out all the kinks yet. How does that impact you? Hmm. And so I want to make sure that like, and I, and these companies are doing twenty three and me actually does a really great job of like explaining that like this is a risk may or may not happen. This is what we know right now. It could happen, but like here is what based on what we know, 
And I think I just want more transparency from scientists to communicate, like, what is the reality of what this discovery really means to a person? Bring it home. Like, okay, genetics explains this much, and my genetics tells me this. And here's all the other stuff that explains it. And now you kind of see this, like, advent of, like, big data kind of coming together to learn because it's not going to just be genetics, right? Like, genetics is one part of it, but it's going to be a lot of other parts that kind of really determine your overall risk. And so I don't want people, you know, I I have people in my family like, you know, grandma got the sugars, I got the sugars, it runs in the family, right? Like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There are some, you know, there are some forms of diabetes that are extremely um, Mendelian or, like, monogenic, you know, Um, like Modi, but, like, we talk about like the the standard, the type two diabetes that you know the most people have. Like genetics explains some of it, but not all of it, right? Mm. And mm-hmm. so, like, I just want people to kind of like understand those things when they take a test too. Like, what does this mean? And a part of that, now I'm going on a tangent. A part of understanding what does this means also means decolonizing the language of science and genetics, because if we're going to make it for everyone then we also have to change the way we we talk about it, change the way we describe it, like really make the language and the explanation itself accessible. That information should be for everybody. If you like to use certain words and get it, like when I describe a gene and like sometimes when I talk about it, I talk about it in a really casual way, like I'm talking about friends, that might be your entry point. That might make right. you say, I want to go and do this. But if I decided to be a snobby academic and read off my papers to you, that that's not an inviting, accessible way. You know, I'm, I'm reinstilling elitism and like that gets, that's not going to get us anywhere. Why did she say that if a product is free, then. If something's free, you're the product. If something is free, then you're the product. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that makes so much sense when she said that. Um, And I hadn't really thought about the value and just the data set is related to genetics, whether it's for um, pharmaceutical companies or whatever. It also reminds me of what Dr. Anissa Ramirez told us about. She was saying, you know, it used to be about just wanting people to get excited about STEM, but then she wanted people to start asking questions. Mm. So it, it was also reminding me of that conversation we had and this this call for transparency about the value of people's data and and what does a more equitable system look like for that data? I think that makes total sense. Okay, so to wrap up, I would like to ask if there's any reflections you have on your own life after taking some time to study genetics. I, I would love to know how it's affected your life. Yeah. There's this really complicated like we talked about the conflict of like being a black woman and being a scientist. There's this other conflict of like um, being a scientist, but also advocating for medicine. Hmm. I, I think medicine is powerful. I think it's impactful, um, especially, you know, the advent of things like gene editing. But there's just such a deep appreciation in the unknown that I'm hmm. really connected to. Um, and so I say that to say, I, you know, I've never taken a genetic test. I don't really have the the feel or the need to want to have confirmed results about things. I feel pretty confident and comfortable in the unknown, my personal unknown. 
Um, and it's because I also, you know, kind of have this faith in the ancestors that oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to be good. Not like, <laughs> not like I'm. I don't think I'm so good. Like I'm not going to go get a COVID vaccine. Good. Like I don't. I don't think that I, <laughs> there are limits. But I mean, like, you know, the things that I actually like need to know and the things that I don't need to know. And also trying to kind of like respect, you know, Mother Nature and the environment and, you know, the world that we live in without trying to alter it too much. It's a weird conflict, right? Mm -hmm. Because I work really hard so that we have new genetic technology that we can use it to really do some really great, amazing things. But there's a very, very quick fine line of when that goes too far. And so I feel like, you know, I'm always kind of like doing this dance of what do I need to know? What do I not need to know? How important is it that I know this? And when I ask myself these questions, I say, what am I going to do with the information? Hmm. And if I can't really do something powerful and, 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 uh, and, not, and, and not just me, but like powerful in a more community way with the information, I'm not really tied to it. Um, I kind of want to just let things go as they go, but it's a weird, complicated thing. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Jeff. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you guys so much. I'm super honored to be here. And, and thank you for telling important stories. Like that's, that's the best part of this. I really mean that. Like it wasn't acting. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back and it is story time. Gillian, do you want to introduce our special guest this week? Yes, I do. This special guest is one of my favorite writers and favorite friends, New York Times bestselling author. Her latest novel is called Yoke, Mary H.K. Choi! Yay! Yay! <laughs> I'm so, so happy to be here. This is so fun. I love this podcast. I'm sending all the Care Bear stares right at you. <laughs> Mary, you're brilliant, fascinating, a woman of many interests. We heard that you'd like to talk to us about textiles today. Well, yeah, it's this thing that like nobody really thinks about. Like people know that I've worked in fashion before. I've done red carpet reporting. I've done like um, runway reporting, but I have a BS in textile and apparel. And so, any, yeah. So anytime I see an outfit, I'm like, yes, you know, like do peony, whatever. I'm also thinking about what it looks like <laughs> when it burns. Like I'm like, oh. You know, or oh, like, yeah. or how it smells. Like, for example, like if you burn nylon, you get these like um, cyanide radicals that smell a bit like celery. And so as much as I love, or like even something like Dupioni, it's like silkworm, cocoon. And like Dupioni, you get that little irregular slubbiness because it's twin cocoons. It's like twin silkworms, like Whoa. making fiber like around each other at, at like different paces so I thought I always thought that was really neat and that's what I love about fashion like even beyond like how it's cut and like how yeah. expensive it is or how fancy it is wait that's awesome can we just for our listeners who are not as up on textiles explain what dupioni silk is yeah totally so it is actually made from these silkworms that eat mulberry leaves and so you have in, like usually it's like one cocoon per silkworm, but because there's two of them, they're just making these like this kind of like double cocoon basically. 
And the other thing, which is kind of a bummer, which but I learned about, you know how like figs and like fig wasps have that relationship where like mm-hmm. the, the wasp dies in order to like get figs abundant and plentiful. It's like kind of a bummer to think about because like silkworms die often. Like that's how you get the silk and that's how you get their cocoon to roll out into one piece. They usually get boiled. So that's a bummer. Great way to start this. But no, so like (laughs) Dupioni is this like beautiful silk fabric. It is like kind of like it cuts really well. It is used for upholstery sometimes and it's very crisp and the warp and weft. So like the the fabric, the fibers that go up and down versus left and right are usually like different fibers. And so you have this like iridescent sheen. Mm. It's very like fancy mm. and like, like ball gowny. It is very funny to think about like <laughs> these thousand dollar gowns at like the Met Gala, you know, are like made by worms. That's some worm. That's that's a little worm house you're wearing right there. (laughs) Totally. And it's always kind of a nice way to think about everything, really. Like, what did it, what what went into the creation of something? I could talk to you about this all day, but I feel like we should get to the story time. Should we jump into it? Sure. Let's jump into it. This is the story of Garrett Morgan, a black inventor from the early 20th century. He's one of many, many African-Americans that changed America. Garrett grows up in Kentucky on a farm, and he loves learning. His access to education is limited, though. Understatement of the century. Still, he's pretty good with machines. So, he moves to Ohio and begins working as a sewing machine repairman. At this point, Garrett's also tinkering away at other gadgets. He learns how machines work and eventually opens his own repair shop. He's got this entrepreneurial attitude, like he sees an issue and tries to solve it with an invention. For example, back then, traffic is, well, a little different. You've got cars but also horse-drawn carriages, then some mix of traffic officers and old-school traffic signals that usually read stop and go. That picture might look a little different depending where you are in the U.S., but that's generally fair for a bigger city in Ohio. So Garrett actually witnesses an accident between a car and a horse-drawn carriage. And so he wants to make traffic safer. He invents a new traffic signal— the key being the addition of a third cautionary signal between stop and go. That invention is the precursor to our modern-day traffic light. We still use his idea. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. So Garrett's known by another invention, too, something called the safety hood. And this is another scenario where he sees a problem and tries to solve it. Okay, so... This is a problem faced by firefighters. They're not just battling fires. They're battling smoke as well. And this is before they had modern-day face coverings. So they're going into burning structures and struggling to breathe. It's kind of hard to do your job well when you can't breathe. Inhaling all that smoke also causes long-term issues with their health. This problem requires Garrett to look for inspiration in the world around him. And he finds that at a circus of all places. You know how you have a crowd of people all gathered inside of a big tent? Yeah, it's it's a lot. So at the circus, with all these people crowded together, it's kind of more difficult to breathe. And so Garrett notices something one of the elephants is doing. The elephant is putting its long trunk through a hole in the tent in order to get some fresh air. 
There's the light bulb moment. It inspires him to create a hood that not only filters out some of the smoke, but also has long tubes that hang down low, really low. So I'm looking at his design. You have this hood that you put on over your head, and it has openings for the eyes with this kind of like protective shield and two long tubes that go from the mouth area all the way down near the person's ankles. It sounds like it looks weird, and it does, but... There's logic behind it. When there's smoke, one of the most harmful chemicals in the air is carbon monoxide, and that rises. That's why if you go into a burning building, the cleanest air is usually down near the ground. So these long tubes that Garrett designed, they allow firefighters to take in the fresher air down near the ground rather than the more toxic stuff higher up. It's a smart idea, especially when you have limited resources. He has a hard time selling it, though. He didn't think anyone would want to buy the safety hood from a Black man. So he has someone white pretend to be the hood inventor just so people take it seriously. There's more. He doesn't make the best choices. It's really unfortunate. But feel free to look it up. Honestly, the whole situation sucks. Eventually, though, Garrett decides to prove the hood's usefulness by putting himself in a dangerous situation. In 1916, there's an explosion inside a tunnel that's being built under Lake Erie. It traps some folks inside who are, like, working. So the local authorities send in rescue crews, but it's not looking good. Garrett is said to have arrived on the scene wearing a pair of pajama pants with his safety hoods in tow. He and his brothers and two volunteers put on the hoods and go into the smoky tunnel, and they emerge with survivors. He receives the Carnegie Medal and a Medal for Bravery from the city of Erie. And the safety hood gets great press after that. Sales for the safety hood climb, and he gains some wealth. Garrett's a member of the NAACP and begins donating to historically Black colleges and universities. He does a lot more with his life, but we'll stop here. There's a ton of stories online that are perfect for a deep dive rabbit hole. So check those out. Okay, just one last break and then we'll be right back. As we've been recording this show, I've noticed that several of our guests, in addition to being accomplished in their whatever aspect of the STEM field, also seem to have a passion or a degree in science communication. And I don't know if, you know, that is what's made them such great guests (laughs) is that they they really think and care deeply about communicating science to the public or if that's coincidence. But um But I've been noticing that commonality between some of our guests. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And I see it even in the story that we just told. You know, Mm. it's not just about like saying something once and hoping people get it. It's that like real dedication to saying like this is a worthy pursuit. These are good ideas. I can't tell you how many ideas I've had that I've just abandoned. Mm. You know what I mean? And maybe if I had pursued them a little bit more, who knows where I'd be? Okay. Should we read some reviews? Let's. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to let you read this one. Here's one from The Chip Monster. (laughs) What a great name. The (laughs) Chip Monster. This is my favorite podcast. The interviews and stories are consistently great. 
I especially like the most recent episode with Dr. Indri Viscontis. I haven't sang much since my school choir ended in March 2020, but after listening, I sang in the shower so I could think about what Dr. Viscontis talked about. I can't wait for more episodes. Smiley oh. emoji. Oh, I, I, got, I started reacting too early because it just pulled my heart. Oh, that is so great to hear. I, I And I love that it's making people reconnect with their own passions and think about, you know, something they already loved in maybe a different way. Curiosity activated. I love it. (laughs) Please do us a favor, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We might read your comments on the show. Yes, and this show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Juliana Torres. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher.